Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Hello there, I'm glad to be back with you today. And today's guest is Adam Homie. He's a speaker, an author, a trainer, a consultant, has nearly 20 years experience helping entrepreneurs win at the game of business and marketing so they can thrive from their intersection of brilliance, passion, while making a difference for your community, market, and audience. He's also the creator of the podcast Reach System and the author of Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. He was a contributing author to Journeys to Success, the Millennium Edition, both international Amazon bestsellers. And he has spoken on scores of podcasts and stages around the country for many years. He is a sought-after expert on topics related to launching a podcast, hosting a podcast, entrepreneurship, business creation, communication skills, and more. Las Vegas is what he calls home. And today, we're going to be taking a very different tack and talking more about Adam Homie from suicidal ideation to living fully. Without further ado, here's my guest. So I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Adam. Thank you so much for taking time to share with us your story. I just want to give the audience uh, a little bit of information because I think it's absolutely pertinent to not only why the show is here, but the fact that we touch on a subject that basically touches everyone else. And sadly, that's not what I want to be saying. I want it to become less and less. I want fewer and fewer people to have stories for me. And that's because here at Suicide Zen Forgiveness, we are covering heartbreaking stories. We are covering stories that show us that there is always hope that we can still be here. And I want you to know that I've known Adam Homie for a few years now. I actually about two years, give or take. I I met him through um Patty Farmer. Yep. Um with uh money marketing magazine. Sorry marketing I can't. I can't remember the newspaper either. But there it is. Yeah, it's got. I know it has three M's. There's three M's, and as I was a columnist for the magazine, so you'd think I could get it right. And I've known Patty forever, and she's absolutely amazing. Oh yeah, I've known her like ten years. Uh, She and I have been on each other's shows a couple times. Yeah, yeah. Patty Patty and I go back to I think 2010 or 2011. Yeah. And 
with that in mind, it was actually Patty that suggested you and I hook up. And we talked about another hat I wear, which is digital integration. Yep. But interestingly enough, it seems when I tell people about the show, there is always a pause and there is always a, oh, I know someone or I have someone. There's someone in my family or I myself. And after that, there comes a story. And this is exactly what happened with you and I. Uh, we talked about a mutual uh, friend, Adam Grant, who yep. you had spoken to. I've had well, Adam Andy Grant, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Adam and I have, you know, connected a few different people, but I was not surprised, perhaps a little saddened that yet another person that I respect has walked the path I've walked. And that's why you're here today, because we want to share your story, because I see the hope and the wonder that's come out of it and see the you that is with us now. So without further ado, I'm just going to hand it over to you. <laughs> I'll ask questions as we go, but just give us your story in your own words. Okay, well, before I tell my story and it's really kind of a short one but there are a lot there's a lot of framework around it what i'd like to begin with is something that i say often on both of my own podcasts and my speaking and elsewhere we hear about millennials and the younger generations being lazy entitled uh, insubordinate questioning authority well i myself am on the bottom end cusp of gen x I came into the world three years before that whole millennial thing started. So I'm basically a millennial. I was just college age when it happened. So as I like to say, the millennial generation was the first one that had consistent, reliable access to high-speed internet at a point where the internet had a lot of information on it that was useful. So simply because of that access to information, that was the first generation that was uniquely equipped in a way that we understand in today's world to question narratives, to recognize and break cycles, and to see things that our forebears before us didn't see. So our parents knew what they knew. Their parents knew what they knew. Their parents knew what they knew. However, there really wasn't a way to fact check it in quite the same way. I mean, yeah, you could go to the library and you could sift through the uh, Dewey Decimal System cards. And a little bit later on, they came up with microfilm. So you could go through years of newspapers looking for something. Whereas today, you, uh, you know, I can go on my laptop here right now, type a few things, hit enter, and I can get not only exactly what I'm looking for, but variations thereof. So not it's not that, that. Let me interject one thing. Yeah. This is really important. Mm -hmm. I'm 67. Yeah. Okay. I'm a boomer. So in my generation, not only did we not have access to all those things and only have the Dewey Decimal System, microfiche mm -hmm. did come in, but yeah, we had practices that were in effect that caused people to be silent. Yes. Because you did not want to be incarcerated is the word I use for being put in a facility, for having electric shock therapy, 
for yeah. being taken away from your family for having those kinds of thoughts. And that's critical because it yeah. is the big difference with the millennials. Sorry to and, interrupt, but do and that, and that And that is why a lot of people my age um, would hear from their parents all the time, one more like that and I'm going to put you in a home because that's what their parents said. And their parents before them might have actually done it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so so when you look at things that are repeated often, you may have to go back. You may have to peel back a few layers if it's become more of a slang expression than something that's directly tangible. But there's usually some root as to why people will say things like that. And it's not done with malice. No. It's just it's just what they what they know. So the younger generations, and actually it's working upwards, up to the boomers. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time a boomer asked me for the 15th time, uh, how do you save a picture to disk? I don't know any boomer that doesn't know how to use the internet at this point. Um, even even my parents, who were extremely late adopters of anything having to do with internet technology, know how to go online. They know how to buy things online. They know how to research things online. However, they refuse to be on social media in any way to the point where we don't mention them at all so i don't share pictures on mother's day or father's day okay. or anything like that at their request so they really want to stay uh, the phrase is kind of like off-grid okay. uh, they just don't want to leave that digital footprint and i certainly respect that um you have other people uh who are of the older generations who are really starting to embrace this now and you think about it it's a great way to reconnect family trees it's a way oh, to yeah. Yeah. rekindle connections uh one of the very interesting th things is i discovered that my father had a first cousin that he didn't know about and i'm referring to his father's full brother's son yeah. who lives an hour from him this cousin was named after my great uncle um in fact has the junior in his name did not know he existed yeah well my father's 90 yep um he has just lessened his use of the internet as he was diagnosed in December with dementia. Yeah. But he has always used computers. And it's what kept him going longer than many because he kept connections. He did all the um, parades and all the, uh, uh, the entertainment for the veterans here yeah. in Canada. Sure, sure. So... So where I'm going with this is we that now have the ability to look at other things and some of the causes behind them. So one of my struggles, and I shared this on Andy Grant's show, is that uh, for as long as I remember, I have uh, lived with a very severe case of trypanophobia, which is the fear of injection with hypodermic needles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, at one point, it got so bad that let's say you and I were having this conversation right now, and you said something like, you know, last month they had a blood drive down at the community center. That would be enough to put me out. That's how bad, I, I, I couldn't get my blood pressure taken. Now, through the ability to research, the ability to look at patterns and look at what causes things like this to get reinforced, you have a couple things going on. One of which is, is I've determined, although I don't have every single fact, that it stems from me being 
physically manhandled by our family doctor because he didn't want to deal with my whining were his words. Um, like uh, he had his assistant shove me face first into the exam table and intentionally jammed the needle in me harder than he needed to while saying, I don't have time for this fucking shit. Yeah. Now, uh, now, now, uh, now, now several of the people who claimed that if he had ever said that to me, they would have punched him right in the mouth. were in the room at the time. But they don't remember it. They don't remember it. See, because what happens in our minds also is we have reaction formations. Now we're getting into Freudian stuff that cause us to suppress memories or even change memories because it's unpleasant. Now, what reinforces things like trypanophobia, which, by the way, an estimated 50 million people, that's 5-0, 50 million which depending on which version of our population count in the United States you believe is somewhere between one-fifth and one-sixth of our population have this. So one in five or one in six people, I think, is the number or something like that. It's a, it's a lot. And, I, and, I, and I've met a lot of people that deal with this. So think about the patterns that reinforce this, uh, some of which I experienced. That, um, well, you just got to be a man, uh, yeah. okay? And as I as I as I mentioned many times, what does that mean? What does that mean to be a man? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, real men don't cry. Real men don't express their feelings. Uh, real men are stoic. They don't burden others with their problems. Yeah. And uh, and when you find not only just the people close to you, but society in general that pushes that message up and gives you that wall, it's an inhibitor to being able to process, well, what really happened here and what can happen? Now, in the meantime, it's funny. Uh, the hy- the trypanophobia refers to hypodermic needles stuck in for things like uh, uh, vaccinations, treatments, and blood draws. It does not extend to being numbed at the dentist. I have no problem with the dentist. It does not extend to if I need to have something removed by my dermatologist and they do a local on me. It doesn't affect me at all. It does not extend to any minor discomfort that could come uh, with a examination by my optometrist. Yeah. Now, here's the difference. The dentist, the optometrist, the dermatologist. You chose it. That's part of it. I chose them. The other piece of it is they showed understanding and empathy for the situation. Now, I know full well that um, if somebody wants to put a needle in here, that's, I mean, depending, unless the contents of the syringe are, are desultory to me, that's not really going to hurt other than a than a little pinch. Yeah. And then he swelling's going to go away like a day. I mean, like, um, I mean, uh, I mean, I have two cats. I get scratched all the time and I, and I yeah. bleed from that and it doesn't affect me at all. In fact, you know, it just sometimes gets annoying when they scratch me in such a way where I have a hard time making it stop. It's like yeah. uh, it's like it's like I need a bigger band aid. Yeah, that's you, Stella and Alessandra, who are on either side of me here. So, so when so when you have that going on, I use that as a as a micro example, and then we get into um, what we're taught about how we're supposed to express our feelings and things like that. I mean, one of the alleged treatments it was suggested for my trypanophobia is that I uh, be forced to watch medical procedures like heart transplants and stuff because it would teach me to be a man. (laughs) Well, 
I have a way of dealing with it. So yeah. let's say I know that I need to have a, a blood draw done, or I know I'm going to need to get a shot or something like that. So if I have about a week's notice, which gives me time to mentally prepare for it, yeah. and if need be, and if need be, see my hypnotherapist and um, and revive the vision exercise. And as long as the person or persons administering it don't try anything funny, like try and stick it in me before I say that, that's before I say they're ready. I'm usually okay. And so it comes down to a sense of control. Absolutely. Now, now let's now let's look at um, you know we. Uh, I think we're pretty much done with this pandemic stuff. I think it's more endemic at this point. Yeah. Okay. But remember, a couple of years ago, there was this big pressure for everybody to get a vaccination that was rushed through and it was called the jab. Okay. You got 50 million trypanic phobic people in the, United, in the United States. You want to call it the jab and you want people to just say, okay, yeah, sure. Stick it in me. Yeah. And then you go to those people. Oh, oh, you're not, you're not going to take the jab. So, so, oh, so you're okay. Spreading disease and killing people. You're the problem. When somebody gets to a severe level of that type of phobia, it gets to the point where, they can look at something and say, well, there's a 99.99996% chance that even if I get COVID, I'm just going to be tired and miserable for a few days, and then I'll be fine. There's a little chance I could die. I could have permanent respiratory problems. I could lose my sense of taste for a year. But, you know, I could live with that. That's the thought process. Um, I was in a situation once. You know, I mean, I know you're, you know, you're a little bit beyond me chronologically. But do you remember after you turned forty and you were assigned a random ailment? You, you know, you know what I'm talking about. After we turned forty, we 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 all get some sort of random recurring ailment or weird thing that happens to us every so often. Mine, mine is cellulitis flare-ups in my lower right leg. Uh, Treatable, treatable with cephalexin, uh, simple antibiotic. Uh, and as long as I remember to actually take all the pills and not just stop taking them when the swelling goes down, I can usually keep it away for about a good two to three years before it happens again. Okay. So I, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the story short here. I was cajoled into uh, going to an emergency room and having ultrasounds and stuff done because uh, somebody in an urgent care uh, scared somebody into the 0.0003% chance that it might actually be a blood clot, even though, even though everybody knew what it was, it just needed the cephalexin. Uh, I, believe that, I believe that that provider uh, did it to get a kickback from the hospital. I think, it, I think oh, there's wow. corruption there. Okay. And I've heard stories from people who work in the medical system that once somebody gets in the ER, they put a price tag on them. It's like, we got to find a way to get this much money out of them. So they were talking about all these tests they wanted to run. And I said, no, do, do your freaking ultrasound. Yeah. And if you don't find anything, we're done. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and see, again, this all goes back to control. So we were discussing... Uh, having suicidal ideation and feeling like life isn't worth living. Now, let's mer merge that with not having access to information. And this is where I found myself during 
my adolescence. Um, it was not a very pleasant time for me, at least as far as the, the school part of it. Um, I was a smart kid with a speech impediment, so fill in the rest of the blanks. Yeah. Uh, it got to a point where I could not visualize making it to adulthood because I had no tangible frame of reference that told me that I would actually make it. So at one point when I was 16, I looked for a way out, which leads to my point, and this is what so many people say about suicide, is it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. I had this conversation with a friend of mine a few weeks ago, uh, and he and he was just saying he just can't understand why so many people, particularly in the adolescent age range, are suicidal, want to end their lives, want to harm themselves, when all that stuff that you associate with so-called high school is going to end eventually anyway. But when you're in that situation, you haven't seen the other side, you can't Absolutely. visualize the other side. Yeah. And the other thing is this. It's been many, many years for me. Yeah. And, and dealing with suicide and suicidal ideation has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. Yeah. But not in the same way as you. It wasn't a teenage angst thing. It's a, it's a, a, a particular condition on its own. Yeah. Where I burned the toast or we had a death in the family. Either one, oh, then I should just kill myself. But yeah. It can be brought on by that. The thing that we found in looking at thousands of suicides, it's about killing the pain. It's yeah. about ending that pain, be it mental, mm -hmm. emotional, or physical. It's not necessarily about the life because they're not looking at life. They're looking at the pain. And pain... Yeah wraps you up and takes over every fiber of your being. Yep. And so it's, people need to understand that 99.9996% of the time, people just want the pain to end. They don't yeah. want to take their lives. They don't want to hurt anyone. They don't want to leave anyone behind. Yeah. They can't see past that pain. Uh-huh. Yeah, I had this um I had this vision I did in my mind of faking suicide and then reappearing yeah. and walking in on people just to hear what they'd say about me. Yeah. And my and my vision was is they would be treating it like it was a joke. Oh wow. Yeah. Wow. Because I because I had seen that trend in human behavior as well. Going back to oh well how could you be such a wuss that you just end it? But, but again, but again, you, you, it's, it's about making the pain go away. Yes. And if, and if there's nothing immediately available or even within reach available to make that pain go away. Now, here's another thing. Uh, that experience for me was pretty harrowing in that environment and school that I was in. And this is another thing where, had I had the internet back then, I had another solution. Turns out that getting your GED rather than a high school diploma is not the curse that they tell you it is. Okay. You can, okay. Still, you can still have a life. You can still go to college. 
what might happen if you want to go to a major university is they may say, well, uh, could you do a year community college just so we could see you're serious about this for your transfer up here? That's about the worst you're going to, that's probably about the worst you're going to get. And a lot of it you can overcome by uh, submitting a good writing sample along with your application and, and, te and testing well on the entrance exams. And you can get that knowledge off the internet. Anything that you missed in school, you can capture off the internet. So what I didn't know at the time was that once I turned 16, I could have, uh, I could have taken the GED and just handed it all back to him and just uh, taken three years off and done something to make money or something like that and then gone off to college. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, and, and there, right, th right there, you have a narrative because of the expectations. You're supposed to finish school or you're a dropout. Yeah. A friend of mine uh, went to MIT for a year. And then he and then he left MIT because what he really wanted to do was be a performing musician. And he was already getting gigs where he was getting paid more for those gigs than he expected to make in his first job coming out of MIT. And that's where his brilliance and his passion was. So he hated being told that he had dropped out. He didn't view it as dropping out. He viewed it as making a different decision. So you're supposed to go to school. You're supposed to go to college. You're supposed to get a good job. And anywhere you you fail along this trajectory, it's either a dropout or a failure. That's not necessarily the case. No, no. I was told when I first uh, finished uh, undergrad that if I ever lost a job or left a job without having another job lined up, that was pretty much the end of my career. Well, something like that happened to me in April of 2000. And you know what's so funny is two business days later, I picked up a temporary work assignment that paid me more than that job had paid me. And I lost the temp assignment. You want to guess why? When you work temp, it's expected that within reason, because you're a temporary worker, that if you have an interview for a permanent job, the expectations, they're going to be flexible with you so you can jut off for a couple hours to take these interviews. I was getting so many interviews that they couldn't count on me for the temp assignment, so we mutually agreed to end it. Okay. So, yeah, all these companies wanted to speak with me. Guess so much for that narrative, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's true because millennials and, and the first batch that have, you know, there are influencers like... Um, Ryan's world. He's yeah. a YouTube. Okay. That kid started when he was like six. Uh-huh. So, you know, unless his parents are really strict about him going to school, there is no way he's going to earn what he earns opening boxes and playing games. Right. In a general job or, you know, go mm -hmm. through high school. He's not even in high school yet. Yeah. You know, it 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 has completely turned the the model that I grew up with on its head. Mm -hmm. You know, you 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 went off to college and and you got a job, you got married, you had two kids and a dog and uh -huh. a cat and and that and or two cats. Or two cats. They're okay. off. They're off screen right now, but as you can see, they're both within reach. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, that was, that was the, the plan just as you knew it, but yeah. 
things have evolved, thank God, because in that day, I could be uh, an air stewardess, a teacher. I could go into the military or be a nurse. Yeah. And sorry, I didn't fit any of those molds. Right. Right. That, that was was not my thing. You know, my mm-hmm. life took a very different trajectory. But everyone, sort of in my cohort, had that same assumption. And I was way ahead of myself in school, so everybody else in my class was a few years older than me. You know, I had the same. I was skipped from the first to the second grade in the middle of the year, which made my social situation even more profound. Believe me. So I felt like I was always behind. I want you to. I want you to picture, and this particularly for our listeners here in the United States, uh, most of them will get what I'm going to say. Imagine being a student at Penn State and not being able to have a legal drink in a bar until the middle of your senior year. Yeah, that's absolute bullshit but i got skipped a year so now i'm already behind the curve and what i really wanted to do after i completed my compulsory education uh that was as i refer to it was to take what is now known as a gap year yeah Yeah. and part of it was because i just didn't feel i was quite ready uh i was doing some things that were actually making me some fairly decent money and i wanted to make some bank for a while so that i could uh eat real food in college and have money for those beers and such. And um, and I also wanted to kind of reset the clock so I wasn't always the youngest kid. Oh, but no, no. What they tell you is, if you don't go to school right away, you're gonna lose all your skills and you'll never end up going. Oh, this, this is funny. When I was working that, that job that uh, was so horrible for me, I was working for a temporary staffing agency as a recruiter. Uh, one of our contacts for getting people to work on our temporary assignments uh, was the professor was the head of the human resource department at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Um, he's retired now. His name is Dr. Jay Leibowitz. He's a great guy. And so I would reach out to him anytime we needed some temp to do an HR job. And uh, he was a good he was a good source because he had some people in his MBA program who had HR experience who were between jobs or who had left the workforce to do the MBA full time or what have you. So one day um, on my lunch, I just called him up and I said, you know, I've been wondering about this MBA. And uh, I went to Penn State. I have a major in political science. I had minors in history and Middle East studies. And I've been out of college for two years. Is it even worth it for me to consider an MBA? And he said, well, and uh, he had this real interesting way of speaking, very thoughtful, very deliberate. He said, well, yeah, actually, you're the students that we prefer because you've been out in the world. You see what's going on. What we teach you will be more valuable and you'll be able to do with it, more with it. So imagine coming to Duquesne, getting an MBA, and then being an HR director for a Middle East oil company. Yeah, I went and applied the next day and I got in. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't blame you. That was yeah. very smart. Yeah, but, 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 but that one very brief conversation introduced me to a whole different level of thinking of yeah. what were they saying that I would 
lose my edge. I mean, I, I did the MBA program full-time and I held down a full-time job. And I mean a real full-time job, like with, with authority and responsibility and everything else. Uh, and uh, I had several 4.0 semesters. Wow. So I lost my skills. No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no, and, and the thing is, those around us, Okay, our, our parents, our, our cohorts, what have you. We can only help people go farther when we know more. Yeah. Because, you know, back in my day, there were very, very set parameters. Yeah. Those of us who didn't fit those parameters found we didn't do any of the things we were proscribed to be doing yeah because it it didn't fit our interior monologue Mm -hmm. but being unaware of what else was out there we couldn't envision bigger than that because we didn't know it existed okay it's like the natives seeing ships for the first time they didn't see them when they first sailed into the harbor because they didn't know what they were you can't see something mm-hmm. you don't know exists. That's a whole other very esoteric conversation. Yeah. But as we learn more, and I'm, I'm forever end up saying, you know, Maya Angelou said, when we know better, we do better. Yeah. And that goes for when we know more. And when you talk about millennials, you know, I've heard all the they're lazy, they're whatever, blah, blah, blah. Well, no, they're that not. May well, be. I will tell you, I know a ton of millennials who are open. They're like sponges. They want to learn. Yeah. They want to know. And they have bigger thoughts of what's possible. And yeah. they have bigger concerns for our global economy our global sociology them and the newer generations too as we work our way down Absolutely. the chain so so hey uh working in a cubicle from nine to five with an hour for lunch and two 15 minute breaks and making sure you answer your phone on the second ring and adhering to a dress code and uh answering all emails probably within five minutes yeah they ain't got time for that no they no. because because they're here for something a lot bigger yeah, and and, and and what it really comes down to, and we can go on this about this all day, but it really comes down to and seeing so many of these folks, and I consider myself millennial-ish. I mean, I got I got yeah. featured in an anthology of stories by millennials, and uh, when I told him I was a Gen Xer, he said, "Oh, you're a cusper. You're close enough." Uh, you. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, thank thank you thank you thank you to Brad Zollis for that one because he was the editor of that book. But anyway, uh, he. Uh, but anyway, what it came what it came down to, what it comes down to is they want to feel that what they're doing makes some sort of difference, and I feel yeah. the same way. And if they're not feeling like they're getting that opportunity to make that difference, as far as they're concerned, their options are open. Yeah, yeah, and and that for me is why we have very different cohorts that are in danger right now. Mm-hmm. It's men ages 40, 45 to 64. Oh, great. That's me. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'll keep an eye on you. But you're right. doing well, and it's wonderful that we see that. But our younger yeah. people 
it's precisely because they don't want to be put in a cubicle. They don't want to work for some big corporation where they're just a number and nobody cares whether we end up with polar bears. Nobody cares whether the world will go forward as it is. Mm -hmm. Millennials are the ones who got on the bandwagon to say, you know what? We need our oceans. Can we maybe stop putting all that plastic crap in there? You know, yeah. these, these younger people, millennials and the, the Gen Z, they care about what's around them. Yeah. Let and me... Uh yeah, let me tell you an interesting story. It just came to mind. Um, I grew up in this really rural area, and the old back road that uh, we lived on uh, was a dumping ground for people's garbage, including their appliances, their furniture. There was this little thing that was supposed to be a pond that had turned into a swamp. Oh, well, um, I guess I had other things on my mind because right around the time I was having the experiences we discussed earlier, I can't remember if it was the EPA or the state or whatever, came in and cleaned it all up, hmm. took out all the garbage, and uh, even got some of the locals involved in some of the cleanup. And it ended up fostering a culture when people saw nature come back, when they saw the water become cleaner. And there were a lot of hunters around there, and they appreciated the fact that there was a lot more deer. So everybody was winning off this. And so let's fast forward to my dearly departed grandfather. God bless the man. Uh, he had some dementia going on toward the end. Yeah. And he had an old freezer that uh, like one of those uh, stand up freezers. Yeah. And he took the freezer, put it on his pickup truck, drove it about half a mile down the road and dumped it along the side of the road. Oh. Okay. Within about two hours, he got five phone calls asking him why he dumped the freezer. The point I bring, what I bring up is, is you can change the culture. Yes. And what we saw there was a culture change and people saying, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I mean, nobody was really mad. And I think people understood that he was about 90 years old at that point and could yeah. draw a lot of conclusions while he would do something seemingly dumb like that. Uh, if you don't know the whole story, uh, yeah. but it was like, it was like, but there was a culture of, you know, we don't really do this here now. Can you please come pick up your freezer and recycle it properly? Yeah. And so you can't, so you can't make these changes and it can be done at the micro level. And what we see in our, in our generations today is they may not be able to change the world, but they can change their own small piece of it. Absolutely. And, and you take all those, pieces, take, yeah, yeah, it adds up. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so why, so why are they going to sit in some, cubicle and obsess over their position on the org chart when they can be uh when they can be at work uh using their brilliance and their passion to add five to one to the roi just by their efforts and then go save some whales absolutely and yeah. it gives you so much more well-rounded personalities when you're able to <sighs> engage in things that matter for others not just yourself that engage in nature you know give people a way to reach back out to others i i think we made a, a very big mistake in moving to the nuclear family we used to have a much wider family group so everybody you know the grandparents were involved the aunts and uncles people people looked out for other people in the family and as we became more and more nuclear, it became harder and harder for people to reach out. I think we're 
Yeah, my, my, my dad lost his first cousin. His yeah. yeah, the son of his father's only full sibling. Not even one of the half siblings, full sibling. Wow. Lost, didn't 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 know we have a cousin. They're about the same age. My dad my dad knew about his uncle Ernest's daughters though, but he didn't know about his he didn't know about his son. Uh the story I think has something to do with the divorce. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, you can I don't know it and I don't even know who to ask about it because I apparently was the one who discovered this long lost relative. So oh, wow. you have that so you have that going on. Yeah. And we're bemoaning the nuclear family and the breakup of the well part of part of it is people are a lot more mobile than they used to be. Yeah. Like yeah. you don't you don't have to live in that podunk town you couldn't stand growing up. You can pick up and you can move. I mean, and what we're seeing and what we're seeing here in the United States, this is this refers to politics, but I'm not making a political statement. Is you're seeing that uh particularly when it comes to how almost evenly we're split politically and how we're seeing more and more states that are effectively becoming one-party states. Yeah. The reason is very simple. People don't like the laws and the culture where they are with maybe a little bit of planning or maybe just them packing a bag and moving. They can go to a state that has the type of government and has the culture they like. True. I mean, I mean, and, and you know, here in the United States, that, that's how you got Florida and that's how you got California. Yeah. Essentially, you know, they're both basically one-party states and they're the opposite of each other, but it yeah, was that same yeah. effect. California has something that drew people in. Florida has something that drew people in. And they each exchanged. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah, well. So, yeah, so, so, yeah so, and so that degrades even at the nuclear family. Here's something else. And there's been, there have been articles written about this. And this really struck me. Um, I'm not going to get into details, but my parents own a lot of stuff. They're art collectors. And uh, they have been trying to get me to come back to their house and go through and pick out all the stuff that I want to inherit when they die. The only thing I want out of their house is this old antique desk that belonged to my grandfather and a couple toys that I still have there that I haven't had shipped out to Las Vegas yet. Other than that, um, my sister can have it all and she can pay me my half or they can just sell it and give me the money. Now, because... I just don't have that same interest. And I was thinking, am I the only one? Turns out, no. Turns out that you have consignment shops and antique shops that are gushing with inventory because the kids don't want the heirlooms like they used to. Yeah. There's been a shift from investing in things toward investing in experiences. Yeah, yeah. And so, and it was, yeah with so many things digital, uh, especially with the cloud, you don't even need photo albums anymore because once mm -hmm. you get your stuff into the cloud, even if your device breaks, you still have it. Yeah, and and my my history, I was an interior decorator. Yeah, very long time ago. Uh -huh. So it it pains me that my children do not want some of the antiques we fought long and hard to get. Yeah. Because I came to this country when I was three. Yeah. We basically came with the clothes on our backs. And my, my grandparents' apartment was built in 1396. Okay. 1396? Obviously not in North America. No. Because uh, there, 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 there are no buildings at, uh, no. extant from 1396. <laughs> they lived in the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. 
Okay. And my other grandmother, I think hers was very new. It was like 1680 or 1690. So oh, relatively. Oh, yeah. Rel relatively new. Yeah. yeah. But along with the, the aged buildings came true antiques. Yeah. Okay. There were things in that apartment that were hundreds and hundreds of years old that we could not bring here. And I mean, breaks my heart. My kids could care less. <laughs> Having mm -hmm. great big solid wood antiques is of absolutely no interest to them. Mm -hmm. You're right. They want experiences. They want to be with people. They want to do things together. They don't care about that stuff except for one thing. And it's one thing everybody's going to fight over. And that's we have this huge leather couch okay that fight over because you can sleep on it is better than the best tempered beating bed there is yeah and yeah. It, it is so it's almost it's 35 years old like it's not yeah. young but it is such a good sofa you wouldn't know that and it's oh, the back in the days yeah back i mean i mean the couch i'm sitting on right now is about six months old and uh I I intentionally paid less than two hundred dollars for it because I expect to replace my couch every year. Oh my god! Let me explain. Let me let me, let me let me explain why. Uh yes. Uh huh. Yeah the uh, yeah the lining around it is already destroyed. Uh, I made I made a deal with Princess Alessandra and Princess Stella that uh, they could have the liner as long as they left the purple cloth alone. Right. They've been holding up their end of the deal. Well, see, but boy, but boy, boy, they've been taking advantage of their end oh, of the yeah. deal. It has a, it's supposed to have a black liner around it. It's now basically white. Yeah, yeah. We we have we have dogs and we had mm -hmm. a cat and all of them. This is such a beautiful leather hide <laughs> that they couldn't destroy it. And and trust me, a number of them tried. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, anything else that that has fabric if you have animals, you're done. And yeah. kids are very much into animals. And the fact uh -huh. is, I think we do better with the company of our animals than yeah. all the material things in the world. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, my my tall dresser has all kinds of claw marks on it because Alessandra can leap from the floor and then she hoists herself using her claws yeah. on the edge and yanks herself yeah. up. So there's so it's all marked up with her claw marks. And uh, in addition to all their scratching posts and toys, they love to use the couch as yet another one of them. And, uh, yeah. and you know, it's, uh, it's their happiness means more to me than, oh, no, the liner on my couch got messed up. It's like, I don't care. Let's well, get another the couch. Is the, the unadulterated love you get from your fur pets. Yes. It is worth its weight in gold. And I firmly mm -hmm. believe that we should allow every child to have a pet because yeah. it teaches you to be more empathetic. Uh -huh. It teaches humans to be kinder. And I think it would also give us all a better choice of being less depressed and having yeah, well, less issues when you have a beautiful animal to cuddle with. I grew up around seven cats. Wow. wow. Yeah, it was a hairy situation. Yeah, now nah, I got a budgie. <laughs> I was only allowed to have a budgie when I was a oh. kid. 
Okay, you can get down now, Alessandra. There you go. But I had a grandmother and an aunt and my mom and my dad. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, so I think you're, and I agree with you that, uh, you know, the changes in how families work and, uh, and there's another side that I see anyway, and uh, whether you agree with this or not, it's just been, you know, the experience that I've seen with some people is that when you have yourself close to an extended family, then you get exposed to a degree more to some of those patterns and those cycles yeah. and it become and it becomes harder to become a cycle breaker when the cycles need broken yeah. for things to be healthier another trend we see sometimes and i experienced a bit of this growing up is where one branch of the family essentially monopolizes you and you basically get cut off from some of the other branches yeah it's like i uh, it's like um there are there are some people in my family that try and tell me I have two first cousins, but I have twenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, to also put that the other way, I need a chart to know all their names. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, 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 are about five or six that, to my knowledge, I've never met. Yeah. So well, fortunate, but, but, but yeah, but, yeah, but I did get a hold of the family Bible, which has them oh, all wow. listed, which is helpful. So, yeah. so, so, at some point, I'm going to use um. I'm going to use the uh, some family Facebook group connections, um, some genealogical work that my late uncle did, and some public records to fill in some more of the trees. Our trees are all on the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah. There are very few of us in North America. There's, mm -hmm. there's some in Ohio, California, and... Um, here in, in uh, the Ottawa area, mm -hmm. and that's it. In a way, and so in a way, it's a similar type of thing where you do have a lot of family that oh, yeah. you weren't really connected with, and maybe, or maybe you could be more connected with them now because yeah. you don't have to meet them in person. I mean, I've actually gotten to know a few of my first cousins because of social media. Yeah, as a child, we went home pretty often. Yeah. So, so I I know the bulk of my family. We don't mm -hmm. see them often, but we do yeah. connect socially as well. Yeah. And it is wonderful because it means that my 90-year-old dad can spend time in a video chat with family in Scotland and with friends in oh, Australia. That's nice. And it is it is amazing because yeah. we're making sure that he's not alone. Yeah. And this is this is another piece part of not feeling that you're alone mm -hmm. is being able to in some cases social media has benefits. It's not all bad. No, Anything no. yeah pretty most things can be either good or bad or indifferent or somewhere in the middle or a combination or a mixture depending on how you approach them understand them and utilize them. Yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's important for people to understand that if you're alone, hopping into a video chat with someone can be better than sitting with your thoughts if you're not having great thoughts that day. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And see, and see that's that's another thing. Um when I was in that place, I had nobody I could connect with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there wasn't even there wasn't even the possibility of maybe knowing somebody online or uh, 
And see, and see, and see. By that point, uh, you know, chat rooms and Usenet groups were already pretty well known. But uh, my parents didn't have a computer and didn't have the internet. In fact, I didn't even understand what those things were. I, I had email for the first time when I was in college. Oh wow! Just to put a framework around when I really uh, began to explore that. I had uh, never used the internet until I went to college, and then it's like, oh, so you carry around this three and a half disk, and it's got 1.6 meg of of storage. And you pop it in, you use it for your email, and you might be able to save 20 messages in your inbox. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 that, and that's when photo attachments were about this big. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I had, my father had, um, it was called Adam, funny enough. Yep. The first home computer. Yep. Um, at the early 80s. And when, when we, we had a children's wear store. And in the mid 80s, we got what was purportedly the first uh, quote unquote portable computer. It was about 33 inches. Yeah. And it had a little five and a quarter inch screen. It took uh, floppies, it took two mm. floppies. This was prior to Windows. I had this yep. in 1988. There was no windows and it was a matter of you got a computer you had to learn to program it if you wanted it to do anything i had a commodore vic 20. yeah and i and i remember the book that came with it and uh practicing all the programs in it and yeah. and uh it was like wow i can make colors i can cause it to make sounds yeah the hyperion didn't come it was an actual computer yeah like a, a business computer not a not a home one. So it came with nothing. And it was our business manager that got us to buy it. And when it arrived at the store, I said, okay, great. What does it do? He goes, well, nothing. What do you mean? Why do we just spend thousands of dollars? He goes, well, we have to teach you how to program. It's like, hang on a minute. You did not mention that. Mm -hmm. But it was a lot of fun learning and yeah. we ended up running our mailing list, uh, having a birthday club, having oh, a what nice. we call the three plus club because it was a lot of families that had three or more children. Yeah. And in the 1980s, children's wear, high-end children's wear was ludicrously expensive. And it was good for them. My husband said, well, if they all have this many kids, we should give them a multi-kid discount because these clothes are not cheap and right. that's so we came up with a club and I'm, I'm very proud to say we still have friends that we made through our store starting in the 80s yeah. because oh, that's was, really cool you know, a service-based industry and I think when you when you build in uh, layers for yourself of people when you make a point of reaching out to others, not necessarily business, I just mean in general, yeah. you have a better chance of staving off depression. You have a better chance of getting through those tough times and continuing to stay here. Yeah, it's you know, it's not it's not for nothing that 
you know, uh, people have what John Taffer calls the third home. Uh, the first home is the place where you live. Work or whatever it is you do for a living is usually the second. And the third is that place you hang out all the time. And they all play a role. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's part of the disconnect for our homeless. Because they don't even have that first home, much less the second and third. And when you yeah. displace people, those ripples go out pretty far into the community. And that's yeah. part of, I think, how we've gotten away so far from inclusion in the way that we really need to include others. Yeah. Yeah, cer certainly. So, I I mean, I've got to say, I admire your work and looking to destigmatize, um, you know, thoughts around um, depression, mental health, suicide. Uh, and, you know, I think that... I, I think that we still have a ways to go with that. And we still have some issues where some of this, these things can be weaponized against the people that they're supposed yeah. to help. That's a whole separate conversation, yeah. but I think, you know, most yeah. of your listeners are going to be nodding their heads saying, yeah, yep, 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 yep. But, uh, but just, you know, having the opportunity to say this stuff that even 20, 30 years ago, yeah. If you'd if you'd have said this out loud, I mean, and in the beginning of our conversation, you alluded to the time where if you ask too many questions of your elders, they could uh, declare you insane, have you lobotomized. Absolutely. That was a real thing. So yeah, and as I as I mentioned, it permeated all the way down to our parents who would say, one more like that, and you're gonna get put in a home. Yeah. Now that's just them blowing off steam. But as we said, that expression came from somewhere. It did. There was always that yeah. seed of truth. Yeah. And uh, I've told the story before, but when I was 15 years old, here in Canada, you could not work until you were 16. Yeah. In my day, late 60s. And when I was 15, the provincial, which would be like your state government, yeah. I got a special dispensation to work at this huge facility it's an hour out of town and nice, nice. was housing for the mentally challenged and it became housing for people they didn't know where to put anywhere else yeah and as it turned out i i lived on base so i was quite far away from i went to a parochial school that my parents mm -hmm. made me go to yeah. so i had to take three buses the second and third bus I shared with a young man who was put in a home, uh, kind of on the bus route. There was a home for wayward boys. And his crime was that he kept running away because the stepfather beat his mother and the sibling, all the siblings. Uh -huh. And he wouldn't put up with it. He was just a little guy, and I think he was like three months younger than me. So the third or fourth day, that I was at my job in Smith Falls, I went out to one of the yards. It was a massive place. It was an eighth of a mile long and had arms off it for all kinds of units. There were thousands of people housed there. Uh -huh. I went into that yard and one of the first people I saw was Michelle. 
And he came up to me and I said, oh, I didn't know you got a job too. He said, what are you talking about? I live here now. And I went home that weekend and railed to my mother against God because I didn't think it was fair that this boy that I went on the bus with, who I knew was just like me, would be put in a home where I didn't think he belonged because I didn't have the words to articulate it back then. Uh -huh. But I knew, I'd been volunteering there since I was 11 years old. I knew that over time, everyone would gravitate to the lowest common denominator, not the other way. Yeah. And four months later, Michelle wasn't the same person that I knew. And the very next year, he barely knew me. Would you say that was a matter of becoming institutionalized? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that kept me quiet until a few months ago. And I never, ever said anything about all the, the suicidal thoughts, all the weird stuff that went on in my head as a teenager. Uh -huh. Because I was terrified I'd be locked up. Yeah. And that's pretty long reaching. Yeah, well, um, I mean, and there are other constraints on um, people being able to own that experience and yeah. there, and therefore get the opportunity to experience the growth that comes with it. Um, what, uh, what, one, one example is that if you declare you have uh, suicidal ideation, um, that can be interpreted as a form of mental illness that can lead to... Uh, in some places here in the United States, I believe it can it can affect your um, your rights to own firearms. Uh -huh. So, yeah. so you have so you have people who own firearms, um, whether it's for sport or for self defense mm -hmm. or what have you, and they find themselves afraid to say something yeah. that can help them because they're afraid that they will have their rights restricted. Yeah. And then you and then I've heard many horror stories of people being admitted to emergency rooms for not even mental health issues. And uh, as part of the questionnaires that they'll ask, they'll say, have you ever had suicidal ideation? And if they say yes, well, then next thing you know, they're being involuntarily 302. Even if they're 50 years old, it happened when they were 14. Yep. So uh, so then not, now you can't even speak with your medical provider. I remember last time I was in the emergency room. That was the thing with the ultrasound I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, one of the, um, yeah, the uh, the woman at the reception desk uh, pulled me aside and started asking me all these questions about my sexual orientation and was I born a man and and uh, do I have depressive thoughts? And my answer to every single one of her questions was none of your business. Yeah. Because I because I, I I was already onto that game. It's like you don't you don't need to know. No. Whether I've whether I've had a gender transition or whether mm -hmm. I like boys instead of girls or whether I've ever been sad before to put an ultrasound on my leg and verify no. what I already know about the blood no. clot. A absolutely. And, and yeah, you're, you're so right. And, and that to me is 
overstepping. Yeah. But it it made such an impression. Okay. That was 52 years ago. Yeah. Okay. That's is it is it is this something that was repressed within you for a long time that reemerged? Yeah. 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 I, I didn't say I I didn't put the whole picture together of why I was so reticent to say anything. The 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 other thing is, you know, my dad has dementia now and it's no longer <laughs> going to hurt him. Because yeah. he's not it's not in his face. Right. So there is that, but, but I've been doing a lot of um, self-work for a lot of years now. Uh -huh. And it's, it's amazing how you'll always find something else. My spiritual advisor says we're like onions. Uh -huh. There's always another layer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so one thing that also came to mind when I mentioned uh, concerns that people have about seeking help that they need or having the conversations they need yeah. to have because they're worried about um being red flagged uh and yeah. it affecting their ability to have firearms and then people ask why does it seem like in the united states we have all these mass shootings that uh, allegedly don't happen in other countries they do by the way but uh but, but uh, we ours tend to get more publicity because we have a lot more media and a lot more social media uh with people running around with their camera phones and uh, the instant dissemination of information so i bring up all the time uh so why is it that switzerland is basically a giant arsenal yeah. and they're not shooting each other so I haven't quite gotten to the bottom of it yet, but my current path tells me they treat mental health differently there. They do. They do. And so, and so what we have here is people who need help, who uh, have guns yes. that then use them in ways that they shouldn't. Whereas if somebody had been there, and we hear with some of the recent shootings we've had, that the person who ended up becoming the shooter was a walking, talking red flag, and people knew. Okay, why didn't they intervene? Because things are poorly perceived. And you know the old adage, don't shoot the messenger? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's part of it too. You don't want to be, think of the whistleblowers. Okay, it doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. They get tarred with the brush of being whistleblower and they are ostracized. Yes. Whether it's good or bad. Uh-huh. Because we have a very backwards way of getting good information out there. And it has been, like this has gone on for generation after generation after generation. We are peeling back the layers, which is why I'm on this mission. I, I want us to start like with elementary school and explaining to children, okay, every thought that goes through your head, it isn't necessarily real. It isn't necessarily true. And you don't have to act on it. What you do have to do is talk to someone. Yeah. And that's where we need to be because when we normalize this conversation, we'll be able to get through some of the other stuff. Because very often, 
a lot of the shooters, it's not mental health per se. It's that they did not get any actual help. And some of them get radicalized because those groups grab them before somebody else does. Like, look back to... Yeah, it's a, yeah. You, you can go all throughout history, and I'm talking yeah. hundreds of years of, uh, of, of various countries' espionage divisions or yeah. intelligence agencies or whatever they called them at a, any given time who want to create a provocation. They go find some local nut to do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, yeah, like, um, like uh, I remember a story from World War II that uh, that our intelligence agents uh, agency, I think it was, no, actually, I think it might have been the French. I'm not sure who it was, but somebody um, arranged for the assassination of a French admiral, and they found a guy and convinced them that if he, that this guy shot this French admiral, that it would uh, it would facilitate the restoration of the Bourbon pretender to the throne of France. So this is this is what they go for. Now, meanwhile, there's another case where an intervention could have saved something. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But until we normalize it all, we're not going to be able to have these interventions. Yeah. Because as long as we keep a lid on things, as long as we keep them hidden in the dark, they become bigger than life. Yes. Yes. And you know, like, I don't want I don't want to get off at any farther off topic because yeah, God bless you, Adam. You and I could talk forever. Oh yeah, we certainly could. We've been here for about an hour, and we've had several appearances by my uh, production assistants, Princess yes, Alessandra yes, the princess and Princess Stella. Wonderful! It's wonderful that you have such good production assistants. Yes, yes. What, uh, what I'm going to ask because I thoroughly enjoyed spending time with you. I think we, we need to come back and do this again. Sure, I'll, I'll come back for another round. That's perfect. I yeah. really, really appreciate that. And yes, I'm noticing we are well over the hour. Well, this is this is the mastermind principle in action. Uh, when we, we began this somewhat free-flowing within a general container and just allowed it to take its natural course. And you saw how one of us said something and then it caused the other to think of something that they hadn't been thinking of before. Like the uh, thing about the trends with heirlooms and kids not yeah. wanting them. I, I, I wasn't thinking about that earlier. Yeah. It came up because of something you said. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, and it has been such a, such a, a wide swath that we've had covered. <laughs> I think it's wonderful, and I I do suggest to our audience, if anything we've said has piqued your interest, if you have a story about any of the pieces mm -hmm. we covered today, and OMG, there were a lot of them, <laughs> I would love to have you uh, comment, come on, give us a, a little bit of your story and what tweaked you in our conversation today. I thank you so much. Adam Homie's been my guest today. I look forward to having him back at some time as well. I thank you so much for staying with us. I'm Elaine Lindsay. This is Suicide Zen Forgiveness. And as always, make the very best of your today every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results.
and also by Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Croon, the motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City. On the stage, Judy draws from her wealth of performance experience, wit, and insight to entertain, inform, and inspire in her dynamic keynotes and half-day workshops.